Yeah, sure, Jan. First of all, thanks again for having me on your show here. And, uh, yeah, what a great introduction. As you were talking about that, I was like, wow, that guy sounds like a really interesting person. I think I'd like to meet him. And I was like, oh, she's talking about me. So, um, yeah, so thanks for that lovely intro. Um, yeah, the search for meaning. Um, so I remember very specifically um, a moment when I became conscious of um, of that search when I was really, really young, maybe, maybe even as young as six or seven. And I was living at that time with my mother and stepfather uh, on Padre Island, um, a beautiful island uh, off the Texas coast, Gulf of Mexico. And it was a balmy night, you know, with the palm trees kind of gently um, blowing in the breeze. And and I was looking up at just all the stars, and and I was just um, overwhelmed with this this question, you know, uh, what's it what's it all mean? What's the what's the purpose? So that's why I use the phrase sort of uh, um, uh, existentially precocious, because um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a generally a, a question that kids at six or seven you know tend to ask, but but I did and. Um, um, and that that question has, as I look at my life and try to find, you know, what is what's the thread that's woven through? It, it always comes back comes back to that. Um, what is the, you know, why are we here? Those basic human questions that philosophers have asked from even from the days in which we were painting on painting on caves. Right, um, you know what's the what's our purpose for being here? What's our relationship with with the divine? Um, what's our relationship with other people? What's our relationship with the natural world? Um, so I think you know partly that question also arose because of, uh, and it sounds sort of cliche now, but um, growing up in a rather uh, chaotic, dysfunctional family, right? So I think that catapulted that search for me anyway, because I I I, I couldn't make sense of, of the family situation I was in. So it kind of threw me in, into an existential crisis, you know, really early, really early on. So, um, so that's the question that um, um, that followed me as I grew up, grew into high school, and then started thinking about what um, what sort of career path, you know, I wanted to follow. Um, and I couldn't articulate it at, at the time, but looking back, I know that, that this was what I was wanting in my heart, was I never just wanted a job, you know, just a, a job to, to make a living, and, and that just never appealed to me. I wanted what I did for... Um, for work to also be what my passion and purpose in life was. So that was always a very big question for me. And, and, and so that was one of the reasons why the priesthood was so attractive to me as, as I got into college and later on is the priesthood seemed to offer exactly that, you know, that the sense of who I am, 
would flow out into what I did in the world, and what I did in the world would be a reflection of who I am. So, so that that search for meaning has taken a lot of different paths and expressions, um, but essentially that's that's the fundamental question, and and that's the fundamental question that drives me today. So that's kind of a long, a long answer to that question. But does that uh, does that round that out in some sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was interesting, the point that you made about the family that you grew up in, because one of the things that I've discovered in the thread through, you know, the work that I've done with people is that very often the contrast of the family um, in relation to what you feel deep down, even at the young age that you were talking about, actually is a very powerful catalyst to propel you along your life journey and this has been a recurring theme um, across many of the people that I've worked with so I thought that was really interesting that that should have been a catalyst for you as well and it sounds like what you were sorry do you want to add to that David well yeah it's just the um, uh, in um, Buddhist sort of psychotherapy um, a typical response if you're in therapy and you're sort of complaining about your family of origin and then uh, the therapist says, ask the question, well, then why do you think you chose them? <laughs> so, mm. you know, there's a sense there too in which, uh, yeah, if the family of origin becomes a catalyst really for the, uh, you know, for the, for the pearl, for the, for the wisdom of, or for some direction for our path in life, that in some sense, uh, even though it might have, you know, we look back and describe it as painful or, or challenging, um, yeah, the question is, well, then why did you choose them? Okay, so that that becomes clear. I see now. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and actually, that's a that's a, a viewpoint that is missing, particularly in the Christian religion. I mean, I grew up in Church of England, and I mean, the concept of reincarnation just didn't exist in that philosophy and i've no it can't no it it, yeah it's it's totally antithetical to the christian understanding of personhood um jan i'm having a little bit of a problem hearing you You can you be a little louder are you able to turn that up um i'll try i'm actually Mm -hmm. on a headset uh as far as i know at full volume so i don't know anything that's much better yeah whatever you did it's better I didn't do anything. Maybe it was a connection problem over the ether. <laughs> so, okay, right. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's fine now. Great. <laughs> Good. Okay. So going back to the the opening story that you told, it sounds like nature had quite a role to play in your experience of growing up. What was the significance of that to you? Um, yeah, it's there's so many so many threads there and so many ways into it um yeah so part of the the chaotic um childhood was that from the first grade through actually senior in high school i changed schools at least once a year sometimes twice and there may have been a couple of times when it was three times um and so number of things um, that came out of that for me. One is is it was very difficult for me to make friends um, because 
for my part, I knew I'd be leaving fairly soon, and it was just too painful, you know, to to get close to someone and then know that within a few months that I would be leaving. So, um, and then coming into oh, you know, the middle of a school year with, as a young kid, you know, kids can be pretty merciless in terms of, of evaluating and making fun of the new kids that come into come into school. So. Um, so I tend, I just naturally tended to find my my relationship with with nature. I mean, I wasn't consciously, I, I wouldn't have, ex, you know, I wouldn't have been able to express it at that. That uh, that's what I was doing. Um, and so, the times that I spent on and off growing up on Padre Island, it you know, it, was, it wasn't developed at that point. It's, it's very developed now, but. Uh, it was mostly just the ocean and the sand dunes and the seaweed. And so um, the, the sensuality uh, of um, of the ocean and the beach, you know, with the, the smells of the sea and the, and the sea breeze and then the, the breeze on your skin and then the sun on your skin and then the water. Um, so it was very sensually alive as a kid and growing up. And... So nature was just coming to me through all of my senses. Um, and then I spent a number of years growing up in the sort of desolate wasteland of the Texas panhandle. Um, and there's one story I remember from, I was probably nine or ten years old at that point, but um, I lived in, a, in an apartment building that my grandfather had owned. And so there was... You know, it was the middle of town, so there was, you know, there were some trees around, but basically it was it was um, not much exposure to to nature. And I don't know how it happened, but um, there was a riverbed not too far from town, and my grandmother would go out and fill buckets uh, full of the riverbed sand, and then bring it back to the apartment and spread out, you know, a shower curtain, and I would play in the sand, you know, in this shower curtain in the living room. Um, so there was just, no matter where I was, there was this, this uh, deep desire to have some physical physical contact with nature. And then my grandfather loved to come to Colorado to, to fish, and so he was a fly fisherman. And, and so I remember <clears throat> being taken on trips into the, my first backpacking trip was actually on the, out in the Viacita Wilderness, which is just, you know, just a hop, skip, and a jump from Durango. And um, so my love for nature has, has been sort of spread between, you know, the ocean and then this great love for for mountains and forest. I can remember, again, as a young child, coming with my dad and other people up to uh, New Mexico and driving at night and through the pine trees and just feeling the mystery and the power of the smell and feeling of, of you know, true wilderness. Because 30, 40 years ago, it, it could feel like true wilderness, you know, in places that now are, are pretty tame. But, but as a young, young kid, they felt so full of mystery and beckoning and connection. Um, so that's just continued all of my life and, and even when I was a priest I would I would um, take 
some of the adults out on a like an overnight backpacking trip and or a weekend backpacking trip and we would have we'd celebrate mass on a rock on Sunday out in the wild and and it was amazing to experience you know with a group of seven or eight people and then just the basic sense of doing a very easy three or four mile backpack and then setting up camp and then eating together um, and, and, you know, not doing anything special, but just what you do when you're out and, and you know, to, uh, to make things comfortable. And, and um, there was more of a connection, more of a sense of community that happened on a weekend backpacking trip um, than, than five or six years of Sunday morning coffee hour, you know, connection and chit chat. So, um, yeah, that experience of of the wild to just open us up in so many ways, not only to the, the more than human world, but also, you know, to the human world. Um, deepen our connection with other with others who are also sharing the same experience. So yeah, I'll and stop I think, there and see what yeah. yeah, I think what you're saying is, you know, by going out into the wild you're free of the distractions that get between us and our relationship, not only with other people, but also with nature as well. And let's face it, today there's so many distractions. <laughs> that, yes, um, exactly, right? Yeah. So it, I found it very interesting what you were saying about being moved around as a child because I really resonate with that. I went through a similar experience, probably not to the extent that you did, but it really affected my um feeling of belonging and in fact not belonging and a difficulty to yes. break into these established groups my you know I do believe that things happen for a reason do you feel that um, that situation was also a catalyst for you to really connect with the nature that was going to play such a big role in your life um, you know, throughout your life, and that if you'd not had that experience, you might have been distracted with relationships with other children along the way. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting how um, how looking back, you know, on our lives, and and we can, <clears throat> from the benefit of hindsight, um, see that. Uh, that often our our gifts are come out of you know are forged through you know those chaotic times that at the time didn't seem exactly uh, to offer you know benefit just maybe suffering and pain um, and so I have tended um, to look back on that sort of chaotic time and see what gifts came out of it. Um, and rather than to, you know, be a, a victim or to blame parents or, or um, for some reason, I never never went down that path. So, so certainly one of them, yeah, was that um, I believe it opened me up to to a sense of um, something deeper and um, and more profound in life, perhaps. That um, because I wasn't finding, you know, that that day-to-day joy and in, in what normal kids, quote-unquote normal, you know, might experience in terms of great friendships and 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 things of that nature. So, 
So it, it turned me inward, in a sense, um, to access um, a deeper part of myself and then feeling really cared for and comforted by the natural world. So, yeah, absolutely. If, 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 so I don't, I don't regret, you know, any, any of my childhood or early, early adolescence or high school days and see that as, as all um, sort of fodder, you know, for, for the paths that I've taken in life. And, and I'm grateful for that. Absolutely, and I do agree that there is a purpose to everything, and if we look for it, we'll really find the significance in the things that happen to us rather than, as you say, becoming victims of them. Exactly, yeah. You spent almost 20 years serving as an Episcopal priest, um, which is very different to what you're doing now, Um, but obviously you decided to leave the priesthood. Um, What took you into that role as a priest and particularly in that denomination and and how difficult was it to move on from that yeah so that's a really you know large <laughs> large uh encompassing question um so as i've just talked about the uh um this going within an early early age um uh was a natural I think spiritual orientation or, or just spiritually oriented from an early age. And so the apartment that I mentioned, uh, my grandfather in, uh, in this small town in the Texas panhandle had built this city block long thing called the Alamo. And it was actually built, um, you know, as a replica of at least the, the front of the Alamo. And so um, anyway, upstairs, it was a two, it was a two story uh, building and upstairs there were ten apartments, and um, um, so maybe when I was about twelve, um, I think it was on Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings, I would invite you know all of the people that lived in the apartments to come to come to my apartment, and then I would have a little church service. So I'd have a little coffee table, you know, with a red cloth on it and some candles, and uh, and I would give some kind of sermon, and then, uh, and then I would, but also, you know, the big part was passing around the offering plate, right? And uh, and and sort of cajoling, you know, that they had to put money in the offering plate because it's like, well, you know, these candles don't come cheap, you know. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I was picking up collections at an early age, and then uh, I still have it. It's a Bible that was given to me by one of the the ladies that lived in one of the apartments there and, and on my birthday when I was 12 years old. And I wrote in it, I dedicate my life to the work of God. Um, so I had a sense, you know, of the, of the spiritual um, from a very early age. And then, um, and then another, another example of his, uh, my grandfather and grandmother had divorced at this point and she was living in New Mexico, in Albuquerque. And she tells the story how I got off the bus one day, and so I was maybe 13, 14 years old, and I had on a pair of jeans and a white T-shirt and then this big um, kind of duffel or suitcase. And, uh, boy, it was really heavy. She said, why, you sure bought a lot of clothes? And 
we got home, she opened up, and there was not another stitch of clothes in there. It was just all books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were theology books. And so <laughs> I didn't even show up with a toothbrush, but I had a, I had a suitcase full of, you know, theological books. Um, and that went for the, you know, by the wayside for a while, actually, when I had puberty, um, because growing up in the panhandle of Texas, there wasn't a lot of, of um, uh, sophistication or any attempt to theologically uh, help young boys and young women, you know, who were discovering their sexuality and try and integrate that with some sort of Christian view. So, so for me, it was, it was either God or or my, um, you know, flaming hormones, and so mm-hmm. it was pretty easy to say, "I'll see you later, God," <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, follow follow those normal, you know, teenage uh, hormones. So, um, so um, I left, you know, when I uh, that sense of Christianity, uh, but then it came back to me. Um, you know, four or five years later, and uh, um, and again, the world has changed so much since then in terms of of openness and exposure, you know, to uh, to other religious traditions, um, especially growing up in, in in Texas, you know, which is if you're spiritual, at least in the, in those days, in the fifties and the sixties. If you're spiritual, then you're, it's just, well, then you become Christian. You know, there's just no, no, that's not true today, but certainly that's the way I thought, you know, and and so, um, so I decided uh, to um, join the army because I had frittered away, uh, um, my grandfather left uh, quite a bit of money for me to, uh, a trust fund to finish college, and I, I kind of frittered that away, and uh, so I decided to join the join the army, um, become a chaplain's assistant. Um, I would develop some self-discipline, um, and then have the it was the um, the old-fashioned GI Bill, which was really good in those days. You know, pre um, well, it was post post Vietnam, but but. Um, Anyway, so I, I I joined the military. I was stationed in Washington D.C. and spent my whole four years there, which was fairly unusual. And as I was exploring, you know, what expression of Christianity that I that I wanted to follow and become a, a ordained in, because um, I had had my exposure in growing up was with the Presbyterian Church. Um, but I became enamored by the works of C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, Church of England, Anglican. And so it was whatever C.S. Lewis was, that's what I wanted to be. So, you know, so the American expression of the Church of England is the Episcopal Church. And so um, so I started attending um, an Episcopal Church there in Washington, D.C. And I remember the first Sunday that I went to this church called... Um, St. Paul's Episcopal Church, right at the edge of Georgetown. And I was overwhelmed by the beauty and the sense of transcendence and um, just the spiritual force of that liturgy, that service, 
um, so overpowered me that that it was too much, and so I actually led before the service was over. And it was only later reading a, a classic book by Rudolf Otto called The Idea of the Holy. And, and there he, he expresses uh, experience that whenever we come into contact with the holy, you know, however we experience that, that we have um, simultaneously two reactions that are in opposition to one another. One is this total attraction, this desire just to embrace this experience with all of one's being. And then at the exact same moment, this fear and the overwhelming desire to flee. And, uh, uh, and that seems as he studied different cultures, different expressions of spirituality and, and, and uh, different experiences of, with the holy, however that's framed you know, by whatever culture, that, that's always found uh, there. So, um, so that was oh, my first experience. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Wanna... It, it, it's almost like, is it, do you believe it's like a fear of losing your identity by getting immersed in that holy? Yeah, holiness? exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, because if it's authentic and, and so the holy by definition, you know, is, um, the, um, the, the, the ego sooner or later is going to have to surrender. <laughs> and so mm. I think there's, you know, a premonition of that early on, like, uh-oh, you know, this could be trouble. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's both a uh, – but I think that's true, you know, of, of love too, right? I mean, there's just mm. this incredible deep attraction, and then also there's this um, sense of – uh, uh-oh, you know, this this could be trouble. Because <laughs> something's going to have to change. Maybe some of our some of our wounds, you know, that need to be healed will come up. And uh, and so we we also retract uh, at the same time that we long to open. So I think it's the same thing, really. It's an interesting point. And I, honestly, we could talk about this forever, yeah. <laughs> David. And uh, right. I do want to get on to... Um, you know what you're doing now and the value of that but it's interesting because i think we've got this this um kind of uh dichotomy of really connecting with people but yet still retaining our individuality and being able to follow the path that we're here to follow in our lifetime and and not to get um diverted because we've been overly influenced by other people's demands on us. Right. Um, Yeah, as a segue into that, uh, part of your earlier question is, is, you know, was it, what was it like to leave the priesthood? And um, um, it, um, yeah, it was it was the most um, devastating experience of my life, really, and um, um, because all the years that I spent as a priest, I truly felt that's you know that was the reason that I was born, you know, and and um, and all of those gifts that 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 I identified that came from from those years of chaos um, seemed to be gifts that were really helpful in you know being a priest. 
Um, and so um, when I left the priesthood, and it was a very conscious choice because it, 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 um, um, it wasn't something that I – it was a conscious choice, and yet it wasn't something that I decided. It seemed to be, in some sense, decided for me in terms of, of the Christian narrative, just not speaking in a way that was, that was full enough or complete enough for me to continue to identify myself with it as a priest. Um, but at the same time that I left the priesthood, I also um, um, separated from my wife, um, and um, I had a six-year-old son. And so everything that that I could possibly, um, you know, point to in my life is this is who I am. You know, I'm a priest, I'm a husband, I'm a father, um, I... I own a home, I have American Express cards, I have status, I have money. Um, all of that, within a very short time, um, went up in flames. And I didn't know whether there was um, life after death, because that's what it was. It was death to any and every form of who am I. So all it was of that stripping been, away of, of your identity, in effect. Total, yeah, total, total identity. Right? And so I didn't know if there was anybody left, you know, to rise from the ashes. And and again, uh, and that's this is why I know the. Um, I'll even use that Christian term, salvific, um, saving, saving grace. Um, I know the, the the power of nature to heal because. I was in so much pain and there was no place for me to go but the wild. And so uh, it's, again, sounds like a cliche, but I I bought for a thousand bucks um, an old Volkswagen van and uh, really just went off on this journey for a year, spending most of the time in the desert or in the mountains and, and just wondering if there was any life left, you know. And so it was... It was my experience in contact with nature that that answered that question in the affirmative. Yeah, yeah, there is there is life after death. There is mm-hmm. uh, a much bigger world than what you've identified with. Um, and I didn't know exactly, you know, what that would look like, but but I knew it had something to do with you know with nature and, and the wild. So. So is that what led you to working as a wilderness guide in the wilderness therapy programs? Yeah, yeah, and so that's um, that's the direction that I turned to. I didn't, I didn't really know, you know, these things are. Um, I didn't know that there was such things as wilderness therapy, and that I could actually spend um, most of my time backpacking and out out in the wilderness and also, you know, make some money. Um, because it, by then I was about 50 years old and that can be really scary as when everything you, you know, my career was being a priest. And so what do you do when you're 50 years old? <laughs> and what you've done, you know, is no longer, no longer an option. So, um, yeah, I was fortunate to discover 
wilderness therapy and um, I had a lot of fears about doing that. Um, and my biggest fear was that the kids would make fun of me. Uh, here's this, you know, this 50 year old dude and what's he doing out here? And, and uh, um, you know, what a loser, that kind of thing. And um, uh, much to my amazement, it was exactly the opposite. Um, there was not one kid that, that ever said anything like that. In fact, it was more like, wow, this is so cool. Like, uh, and I was the age, uh, for a lot of these kids that their, that their dad was. And, and so, you know, they would say, oh man, I wish my dad was more like you, you know, that we could go <laughs> backpacking together or, so yeah, those fears that, um, uh, were laid to rest as I actually, you know, did the work and, uh, it was just an amazing, amazing gift to um, to spend the typical um, schedule for a guide is eight days on and six days off, and so you know half of the month I was out backpacking and sleeping under the stars and uh, and then being with these amazing amazing kids and um, um, I, I saw them quite a bit differently than uh, than certainly their teachers or their parents in some sense were seeing them <clears throat> in that um, yeah they were really messing up you know a kid doesn't get sent to a wellness therapy program unless their parents are uh, afraid the kid's going to come home or um, well actually not come home that their kid's going to die from a, from a drug overdose, overdose or getting killed in a car are being shot in a drug deal, you know, for some of the older kids. So it, it's a real life or death situation, and uh, and it's very expensive. It's the average cost is about fifty grand for the average stay for a kid. Could be even higher. So it's a big deal, you know, to to make the decision to send your kid there, and and then you know to know what these kids have done, and they they were pretty much out of control uh, with their parents. You know, they stopped going to school. It's, it's, Really, they were stealing from their parents in many in many cases, um, um, and and then to, to experience these kids and hear what they've done, and and often I, I couldn't I couldn't fit you know what they had done with the kid that was before my before my eyes, um, and so I framed the story you know for the kids that because they had been told for so many years that they were no good, you know, that they were worthless, that, that they were messing up so badly, that they were a failure, and just bad, 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 bad. And um, I saw them differently. I saw them that these were the cream of the crop, actually, <laughs> in terms of the kids of their generation, and that they, um, their vision of the world was right on. They were able to see through... Um, the uh, uh, the violence and uh, the, the hypocrisy that the so-called American dream, you know, held out for people. So, for example, most of these kids came from very successful families, and so they would see their father, who might be the CEO of some corporation, and be considered just you know a great successful man, but he was a drunk and alcoholic and beat his his wife and 
and beat him up. So, um, so they had a sense of something that that didn't ring true with what they were being told by the mainstream culture. Um, the problem was they they didn't have the skills of the maturity, or what I would say, the rite of passage. <laughs> um, to help them channel that vision in, in, into something uh, positive, both for themselves and for the world. And so I would, I would reframe, reframe the story for them. Like, don't give up, don't give up your vision. Don't give up how you see the world, because the way you see the world right now is pretty much right on. It's just you need some help in terms of channeling this in a way that's not destructive, in a way that's not violent, in a way that's not hurting yourself and other people. And um, so that's fundamentally why we need rites of passage for our young kids, and especially young men, because of the you know the hormones. Like you know, studies show there's nothing more dangerous in our culture or any culture really than a 20-year-old uninitiated male, um, because they are pretty much off the chart with their with their hormones and their um, raging, <laughs> raging bodies and raging vision of the world, and so without a rite of passage to help them really channel that into um, into the good, the good for themselves and the good for the community, um, they are the most destructive creatures on the planet. So yeah, that's um, yeah. Go ahead. Really good point, actually. In fact, it's something I was going to raise from what you said earlier about your own experience kind of going into the puberty and the hormonal phase. Right. Because it sounds yeah. to me like what you're saying is that these kids were really seeing through the um, the facade of the status quo and, and really picking up on the the perhaps the lack of honesty and the inauthenticity mm-hmm. of that but had no means to deal with it positively and just responded with rebellion in effect. And I, I know yeah, and read, I, yes. Um, yeah. And I, I've seen in other places, this is even before <clears throat> I knew the work that you were doing, about the importance of that rite of passage between the, the child and the adult, particularly for males, as you were saying, because in our culture... Um, young people seem to be treated as um, almost like permanent children <laughs> in some respect yeah. because the parents still want to control what they do and how they do it way beyond when you would consider them to be adults. Would you agree with that? Yeah, exactly. And and without authentic, you know, healthy rites of passage in a culture, um um, the adolescents, um, they will try, to, they, they know the importance of initiation, you know, either if it's not conscious, it's certainly a, a subconscious thing. And so they will try to initiate themselves, and that's generally through destructive means. So that's a clear example of why uh, kids are drawn to gangs. Because all the essential elements of what uh, an initiation, a rite of passage, uh, are right there in bold relief. Um, but it's not a healthy, uh, constructive um, rite of passage. It's a destructive rite of passage. So 
So, uh, so kids will try to initiate themselves when there's no healthy, viable elders um, to help initiate them and, and healthy rites of passage. So it's, it's, in some sense, it's not really whether there's going to be a rite of passage, it's whether it's going to be destructive or whether it's going to be healthy. So there's no, there's no ritual and no role model for them to follow, and the only alternative they have is to kind of prove their adulthood through rebellion and through, in effect, a, a very negative um, yeah, choice. Yeah, it's a harmful means of um, of violence and um, drugs, um, you know, and just all all those things that. Um, that if they're coming from this uninitiated, desperate place, then then it's going to be destructive. So, David, um, could you just yeah. expand on how you approach this in the work that you do now in terms of taking people through uh, a rite of passage? And I know you do this for people at several different stages, not just at the child-to-adult stage, but could you just give us an idea of, of how that works in practice. Yeah, so you know that old phrase better late than never. I mean it's it's uh so I think in any in any vision quest or, or which is always in some sense a rite of passage. Um because what's at the heart of a rite of passage is um is Gosh, the old Christian theme of death and resurrection, um, and so a rite of passage is a is an intentional, um, an intentional entrance into this death and resurrection um, experience. Um, so, even if someone hasn't been, you know, authentically initiated from um, an adolescent into Adulthood, no matter what time of life it takes place, it, it in some sense always has that has that dimension to it, um, whether it's you know conscious or not or not conscious. Um, so, the way I describe a, a rite of passage, um, and you know many many people have sort of outlined the the three fundamental steps to this. Um, but let's say you're, you know, you're living in Durango and, you know, your life is going along reasonably well. You've got a nice job. And um, anyway, you've, you've got your house and you've, you know, you've got everything decorated and just the way you want it. And, and you're just kind of chugging along in life, living life. And then um, all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And uh, you open the door, and there's these three angels, <laughs> and they just kind of put their finger up, you know, with a kind of come here motion. It's like you're coming with us. I was like, well, what, what? what? I was like, no, I. You know, it's like, no, there's no, there's no discussion in this thing. You're, you're coming with us. And so, you know, that that knock on the door can be um, uh, through. Uh, you feel a lump, you know, in your body somewhere, and you finally go get it checked, and oh my gosh, you know, it's cancer, and then maybe it's malignant, um, or 
you think you've got a great marriage, and then all of a sudden you find out that your spouse has had an affair. Or you've been with this company, you know, for 30 years, and then all of a sudden you get a notice and the company's been bought out and your services needed. So, you know, what? anyway, your life, um, as you've been bumping along, is is over. <laughs> um Whatever happens, the life that you've known is no longer possible, and so that's that's the knock on the door. And um, um, so you leave everything that that's familiar, and you enter in you know what's called the underworld. And the underworld is that place of uh, total unfamiliarity. Um, it's a place of Terror of scariness. Um, you don't know how to navigate it, but you got to because you're there, right? And in some sense, you don't know whether or not um, you're going to survive that. You know, as I talked about the uh, sort of the burning down of my life, you know. And so you don't know. You don't know um, in this darkness whether you're going to see light again. That's 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 an unknown experience. But it's fundamental um, because what happens there is, is that you gain skills that you never knew you had in order to, uh, to survive you know, this dark time. And you receive help from places and people and sources that you never would have dreamed of in life. And um, so as you come out of the underworld, you come, you know, come back to community um, you bring all these gifts with you um, and the traditional understanding of rite of passage is that you've, you've gone through this experience not just for yourself but because the community needs uh, the wisdom and the gifts that you've learned and that you've developed in this journey in the underworld and the community can't survive without them so, so it's, it's, it's a give back you know, it's it's not just a selfish piece, but the community, for its own survival, needs the wisdom and the gifts that you've learned in the underworld. So, yeah, um, yeah go ahead. I was going to say, David, that that's a really beautiful way of explaining it because, you know, I myself went through something very similar to that in my early 50s, and I know other people who also, by coincidence, by coincidence, is there any such thing? Seem to go through this process at, at similar ages as if the pressure to actually be authentic has just become so great that there is no alternative but to follow that path. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I was struck by um, um, how, you know, this this program that that you and your husband produced, this conscious living, is that's really what a rite of passage is. It's making this underworld journey conscious. And, and that's how it can, it can um, really become something that's positive and, and sustain and sustainable and enable you to come back, um, to come out of this darkness, um, not shattered and, and, you know, the worst off, but come out actually, um, more, more healed, more whole, more healthy, 
And so that's a great benefit of the rite of passage is that you make this experience conscious um, and, and intentional. Um, and our culture doesn't, we don't like to go gently into that, you know, good night. We, we're afraid of the darkness. Um, we, um, as a culture, we tend to tell people, you know, look on the bright side of things. You know, oh, don't go to that dark place. Don't dwell there. That's negative. That's depressing. And so we miss the great gift, the gift that is in that sweet darkness um, when our world is upended. Um, so, um, yeah, it's making whatever we're going through conscious. And it doesn't always have to be that knock on the door. It doesn't always have to be something that, um, that's deemed uh, negative. It can be something like entering into a, a, new, a new marriage. Um, but there again, there's, there's, there's a death involved because you're going to have to die to being single, you know, and all the, the ways that you've lived your life as a single person. Those ways are not going to be sustainable in a marriage, you know. Um, so, um, so, yeah, there's a death to that person you were as a single person, and then there's this embrace of this new life um, in this new adventure with this this new partner and mm. so you know but there's still a death you know there's still a death there even though it's a very joyous uh, you know adventurous exciting exciting piece so a vision quest or a rite of passage um, that that can really bring consciousness to bear on that because you know most of our marriage ceremonies they're not going to bring a lot of consciousness you know to what you're doing but a vision quest, it, it, um, the whole experience of a vision quest is really entering into ceremony. And then there are very, very intentional ceremonies that one can do, you know, to facilitate this, this birth of this new person, either as a new husband or a new wife, um, or maybe, you know, the kids are now grown and they're gone, and so... Who am I as a mother? Who am I as a father? Um, now that the kids are on their own, that's, that's a rite of passage. And so to consciously enter into a vision quest that um, provides the support not only of, of other people you know, that are out there exploring the same thing, whatever death they're celebrating and whatever <laughs> new life they're celebrating, um, you're all in it together and then you're in this crucible of nature, which all around you is about death and new life. You know, whether it be the seasons, just the, uh, the going from sunrise to sunset. You know, there's, there's a death and resurrection every 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, it's all around you, and nature is, is, is mirroring that with you and, uh, and consciously connecting with you in in this experience of who am I now? You know, what is my purpose in life now that my kids are grown? What is my purpose in life now that I've come through this cancer? What is my purpose in life now that, that marriage is over? And, uh, and who am I now? And so, so this rite of passage, you know, consciously, a very conscious way, helps you enter into that at whatever level that you're willing to, to go through at that point. And nature is there to support you 
and and speak to you and enliven you know whatever direction that comes out of your quest um, and it's guaranteed it's like it's a money back guarantee that <laughs> that nature will do that because we're a reflection of nature and we come from nature and and the wild within you know is expressed in the wild without and then the wild without expresses itself in the wild within so um, so there's no other no other way really to have this kind of profound experience uh, other than um, than being in the natural world yes and um, David I could talk about this all day actually and we are coming towards the end of the show but I would really like oh my to gosh hasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it gone quickly um, it has just like to ask you before we move along and we do we do have a little bit of leeway here in terms of time um just wanted to clarify the way you were talking it sounded like the vision quest was the means by which the rite of passage is is experienced is that right yeah it's it's the vision quest uh is the fundamental um structure for um, a rite of passage, um, and so yeah, there are other you know lots of other uh, means to engage oneself, you know, in the wild. Um, for example, I just led a, a weekend um, experience outside of Santa Fe uh, on the medicine wheel, and that's simply taking the four directions. Um, and using the, the four directions as a mandala for human growth and development. And so it's the very natural, nature-centered way, template for looking at where we are in our lives. So, for example, the South, um, the South is about childhood and the body and just being unencumbered, you know, in a way that kids kids are. I mean, they... If they need to pee, they just pee where they are. You know, they they don't they don't care who's looking. You know, they, they put mud in their mouth. They're just these little sensual beings that are just engaging the world. You know, particularly in a very very physical, raw, physical, bodily way. Um, and and then the West going into adolescence, um, that sort of question about you know who am I? What's my relationship with other people? You know all the angst that teenagers go through in terms of self-discovery, um, and the West is often associated too with that descent. You know, the West, the, the, the setting sun, the kind of going into the underworld, and then the North being um, the time of, of um, adulthood and giving back, giving back to our community. You know, the wisdom that we've gained. Um, and then the East being that place of both birth and death, spring. Um, oops, yeah, so the North is winter, you know, and then the East finally is. Um, that place of mystery, the paradox of both birth and, and, um, and death. And so going around um, the medicine wheel that way and then going off in nature with a question from each of those directions 
um, pondering where you are in your life. You know, have you have you forgotten the body? You know, are you out of touch with your body? Are, are you out of touch with that that sensuality, that eroticism? You know, um, the the innocence or the curiosity of the child. You know, is that missing in your life? Is that something that needs that needs attention? So you know, it's 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 just a beautiful way. And then when you when you take those questions out into the wild, um, you get these incredible answers. <laughs> and then you come back and you share that you know in a in a group, and and it's it's just uh, you've got the whole you know the whole thing there. So yeah, it doesn't need to be the full blown you know vision quest to have these these uh, these transformative experiences in nature. Um, there are lots of ways, um, you know, to enter into that. Um, but the vision quest remains the fundamental structure for to really um, deepen and um, and let it really seep into your very seep into your very bones about this is who I am now. You know, this is who I am now that I'm no longer. Uh, have that job. This is who I am now that I'm stepping into this marriage. This is who I am now that I'm uh, entering into elderhood. Um, and 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 so it provides a real sense of direction and purpose. And no one can take that away from you when you've experienced that in a vision quest, because uh, it's it's held deeply in your heart and and you know it's true. That's wonderful. Thank you for um, sharing yeah. that with us, David. It sounds like an absolutely wonderful experience. And obviously, we've not had time to really talk <laughs> much about your work as a, as a spiritual mentor. So I think it's probably a good point at which to share how people can get in touch with you, where they can find you, so that anybody that's interested in pursuing um, a vision quest, rite of passage with you, David, will know where to find you. And also, of course, with the spiritual mentoring, that isn't something that is location dependent, is it? So, um, right. anybody no, especially, yeah, especially with, um, yeah, the ways that people are connecting today through Skype and, and, uh, you know, all the ways in which we can connect with each other that, that sometimes, um, can't take place in a, you know, one-on-one, if I could just briefly say just something about the spiritual mentoring, it's one of the things that I've discovered is, is that, you know, through the great wisdom traditions, even though um, the way that one experiences or the way that one talks about one's experiences with the divine or with the holy, you know, varies greatly according to the narrative of, of any one particular wisdom tradition. But, um, but what what is there is always this uh, centrality of um, of, the, of the experience, no matter how it's expressed. And these experiences um, go through a developmental process across the board, no matter which tradition you're you know, talking about. And so there's a map, you know, for navigating uh, your spiritual life no matter how you're expressing it, whether it's uh, as a Hindu or a Sufi or a Christian or a Buddhist or um, Muslim. And so it can be really helpful, you know, to have a guide um, in that process. And so that's, that's the, uh, the uh, excitement about doing spiritual mentoring. 
is that it, it it's it's not about you know one particular wisdom tradition being right or wrong or better than another, but it's about whatever tradition that's speaking to you and that you're finding life and value and purpose in. Um, it can be really helpful to have a guide because there are uh, places to to fall off a cliff that are pretty common in all those spiritual traditions, and uh, and we are. Um, we're not our best judge in terms of where we are in our spiritual life. Um, we we often need some some guidance for that. So anyway, that's that's just a brief thing about the spiritual mentoring and how I see that. Um, so the best way is is to um, um, the website that you have so beautifully and artfully designed. Um, Thank you. Called WildSpiritPassages.org. Um, and there's a place to um, sign up for the blog. Um, I uh, haven't been as faithful, you know, in this initial stages, computer failure, that sort of thing. But, but my intention, you know, is, is that there'll be uh, a couple of blogs, two or three blogs a month that will speak, you know, to all the things that we've been talking about, why it's a passage, how do we find authenticity, you know, in today's world, that is so chaotic and cut off from our fundamental roots um, an essential um, experience that we need with nature in some form. Um, and so signing up for the blog, and then I'll have your email address or just email me directly at david.wildspiritpassages at gmail.com or I'm always happy to get phone calls, and that's the phone number's on the website. Um, there is a Facebook. It would be great if people wanted to go to uh, the Wild Spirit Passages Facebook page and like it. So, and then also, as I get up and running, uh, I'll be on Twitter much, much more. Um, haven't really got that off the ground yet. So, so all these social media ways, lots of ways to get into contact. Um, and I'd love to talk to people just, uh, you know, just to explore, you know, what what's going on with them um, in terms of um, their their lives and and uh, maybe they're attracted and you know, maybe I do need to get out and, and uh, take a walk in the in the park or explore a little wider you know beyond the uh, beyond the city streets what might that be like and what what new things about myself might I discover? Okay, thank you, David. Thank you for sharing yeah. that and. Um, Yes, all the details of how to contact David are actually on the show notes. So um, the links are there if you want to refer to them later, if you didn't quite catch that while David was talking. So all, as I say, all the links are there. Um, I really want to thank you, David, for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, another case of we could have carried on for hours, I think. (laughs) So thank you very much for being a guest. And, um, thank you for the opportunity, Jan, to uh, yeah to share. Thank you. You're very welcome. And so um, we're getting to the close of the show. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this show. We are broadcasting every week with more expert and inspirational guests talking about all aspects of conscious living. So if you want to avoid missing any episodes, please follow us on Blog Talk Radio. Or you can also visit the radio show page at asmilingworldmedia.com where you can listen to our latest shows and sign up to receive news of upcoming shows by mail. 
You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash powerful people. And we have a Conscious Living Club group on Facebook as well, which has been set up recently. So if you want to join that, just do a search for Conscious Living Club and you should find it quite easily. All the details of our contact uh, information is on the the Conscious Living Club show. And I'd also just like to thank Pine River Library here in Bayfield, Colorado, for the generous uh, availability of their media room from which we're broadcasting today and on future shows. So that's it from me. Thank you again for being here. And I'm going to hand over to Bill now to close the show. Okay, thank you, Jan. And a reminder, the Conscious Living Show is brought to you by Jan and Bill Moore of A Smiling World. And we provide coaching, training, and events on personal empowerment, conscious evolution, conscious business development, and the universal laws of success. To find out more about our coaching, workshops, and online courses, and to get your free copy of Dream Achiever Success Kit, Go to asmilingworld.org, and if you're building or planning to build a conscious business, you will find a wealth of free resources at successfrequency.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for more expert interviews, tips, and tools on conscious living. And now we will close with the Beach Boys from their 50th anniversary album, Good Vibrations.
Sing along, it's alright. 